listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is Aaron Fishman coming to you during a little bit of a calm period before the real free agency storm gets underway. That said, we've already heard big news regarding Chris Paul's departure from LA and Phil Jackson's parting from the Knicks, as well as a ton of rumors that are certainly exciting, but not always the most reliable. To help us sort through all this, Keith Smith joins us, bringing along an encyclopedic knowledge of the salary cap and a good old-fashioned love for the game. Contributing to Real GM, Fan Rag Sports, and Celtics blog, Keith is also the host of the NBA Front Office podcast, where he's exhaustively conducting interviews with fellow writers about each and every team in the league. If you're familiar with his basketball analysis output, you might not know that our guest currently works in workforce analytics for Disney World. Don't get it confused. The NBA hardwood, however, is his happiest place on earth. Hey, Keith, it's really great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. No problem. We're recording this on Wednesday evening, just in case breaking news happens before this episode comes out. This afternoon, though, there was already a big deal that was made. The Rockets traded for point guard Chris Paul with the Clippers, sending over Patrick Beverly, Sam Decker, Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, a first-round pick, and a lot of non-guaranteed contracts. First of all, I want to talk about the Rockets side of the trade. The comparison a lot of people are making is to two years ago when the last time Houston tried to pair James Harden with a ball-dominant guard next to him. Obviously, Chris Paul isn't Ty Lawson, and a lot of other things have changed with Houston's system since then. But how do you see, I guess, these pieces meshing together for the Rockets? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of concerns out there that people have brought up as far as what you mentioned. They're both high-usage, ball-dominant guys. But my big thing has been uh, towards the end of the last season, you could really see it, especially in the Spurs series, James Harden was worn down. Mike D'Antoni's system requires a lot of players. He he only plays about eight or nine guys, and then he asks a lot of them to play at a high pace. James Harden as the main ball handler to run pick and roll basically every trip down, sometimes multiple times on a trip. And that really wore him down. So having Chris Paul now, he can kind of take turns with that. Paul can come in, do a lot of that primary ball handling. Harden even mentioned, I think it was only about a week or two ago, that he would like to play off the ball a little bit more, get back to what he did in his OKC days where he's doing more slashing and cutting and those kind of things. So I think that opens up a lot for the Rockets. What is really interesting, too, is when you really look at it, big picture, these two guys are probably only going to play somewhere between 20 to 24 minutes a game together. So that's going to leave anywhere from 6 to 10, 12 minutes for each of them where they're going to play separately. And they will feast against whichever one of them on a given night gets the backup 
players, they're going to feast against those guys. So Mike D'Antoni will get it figured out. The bigger concern for me stylistically is Chris Paul has historically led offenses that have played at an extremely slow pace. Now he's going to a team where they all they want to do is run and get it up and down the floor as quick as they can. So it'll be interesting to see how he adapts his game. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And D'Antoni did say in his press conference today that he's going to try to avoid any meaningful minutes without at least one of CP3 and Harden on the floor. So he's going to stagger minutes in that way, as he brought up. Another comparison to, I guess, 2015 is that in that system, the Rockets also had Dwight Howard, who is notably reluctant to ever run pick and rolls, which made it a lot harder to have that two-ball dominant guard system. So at least I'm... um, pretty excited to see how it works out. I share the concerns that you brought up too, but we'll see. The Rockets have also been busy in amassing a ton of other non-guaranteed contracts that they didn't send to the Clippers. They picked up via trade guys like Ryan Kelly, Tim Quarterman, Sean Long. What do you see as the purpose of these side moves? Do you think it's more for use in like another big trade? I know they're thought to be suitors for Paul George, or is it for just a a manipulating the cap type of purposes? Well, I think it's ultimately what it's what they're doing is they're putting themselves in position to be able to go after another big player, whether that's Paul George or someone else. They are now sitting where they have all these guys. They have, as you mentioned, they they added Ryan Kelly, Sean Long, Tim Quarterman. They also have Isaiah Taylor, who was on the roster last year. And all those guys are non-guaranteed. So what that gives the Rockets the flexibility to do is that is a total of, I'm just doing the math here, $5.5 million that they could use towards salary matching in a trade towards a guy like Paul George without having to then go out and figure out another way to find enough salary to make that happen or anything like that. So now those guys alone aren't talented enough to get a player like Paul George, but at some point you are looking towards how do you make the cap math work? And what the Rockets did was put themselves in a position to be able to do that relatively easily by the avenue of acquiring all of these guys. I was going to ask you right now, just from the Clippers perspective, because I think a case can be made for, either of these options but in your mind do you think that now with Chris Paul being gone moving on to Houston if this deal makes it more or less likely that the Clippers decide to bring back Blake Griffin for the long term yeah that's a really interesting question I did a couple radio hits earlier today and we talked through that and one of the things that's really Funny about the Blake Griffin question is you can see it going one of two ways. You could see Blake Griffin saying, forget it. We can't replace CP3. I'm not going to be able to win here now. I want to move on. I want to get out of here and go somewhere else. Or you could see Blake Griffin saying, finally, it's my team. I have it to myself. I don't have to deal with this guy yapping at me all the time. And, you know, we didn't necessarily get along great. So that's where it becomes really tricky. I think if the Clippers come with a full five-year max offer, I think that's going to be really hard for Blake Griffin to pass that up. But if the Clippers say, you know what, we just don't have the talent, it's time to rebuild, then I think you could see Blake Griffin say, all right, you know what, it's time for me to move on and go elsewhere. That's a good answer. The way that I asked the question was slightly misleading because obviously as your response indicated, it's a two-way street. It's not only 
what the Clippers are wanting to do. It's also up to Blake Griffin since he's now an unrestricted free agent after opting out. I personally expected as a Clippers fan, someone who follows them, for the Clippers to go all in on keeping both guys, Chris Paul, regardless of his age, just because he's the best player the franchise has ever had. And then Blake Griffin, even though he's had the knee injuries, number one overall pick, has a, a complete game and just works so well with Paul and Jordan, at least on the court. And they've had so much regular season success. So I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. But Blake Griffin, so from my perspective, not talking about basketball, it seems to me like he loves Los Angeles, loves the stuff he does in the entertainment industry. To a certain extent, them getting Patrick Beverly, who does a lot of things you need for a winning team, and um, also getting the scoring of a guy like Lou Williams and then the potential of Sam Decker. We'll see what he does. That makes them a little bit more competitive in the near future, even though they're not a championship contender. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. The challenge is, though, they're going to lose J.J. Redick, too. And that was going to happen regardless of Chris Paul going or Blake yeah. Griffin going. He's Their luxury going. tax situation was going to be horrible, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was... They, they were going to be, you know, uh, if people thought Cleveland looked looked rough last year. The Clippers were <laughs> in, in place to blow that away. So, yeah. you know, they're going to lose lose him. They're probably going to lose Luke Richard and Bob Mute, who, you know, on its face, a lot of people are like, who cares? But he's a productive player. You know, he's their best defender on the entire roster. So that's another loss. Jamal Crawford's getting older. He's showing signs of slowing down last year. While they brought in some good guys, as far as Beverly, he's a you know tough, hard nosed guard that anybody would love to have. They brought in Sam Decker, who's a nice you know forward prospect. Lou Williams, good six man candidate. I don't know how much you need him and Jamal Crawford though. They're they're very similar players. Pretty redundant. Yeah, so it just becomes a challenge of seeing you know where can they get better, and they're still not going to have cap space. That's the trickier part because without cap space, they still can't do do much at all. So that's going to be the the harder thing for them. There's really no clear avenues towards improving the roster even after this trade. Yeah, the other two things I wanted to bring up. One is um, Blake Griffin. So with all of those injuries that just have such a cumulative effect, especially that knee both of these he's had um, a lot of concerns and I think teams will be wary of that but then again there are a bunch of teams that will throw a lot of money at him it'll be one fewer year I believe but still but also I think even though they're not a championship contender or even close with the product that they'll have and it might be smarter to tank right now and just not even go after Blake Griffin. I think with that ownership group of Steve Ballmer in place, that I don't think they want to tank. I, I think that given that they have designs on separating from the Lakers and, and getting their own arena, and just I think they just want to keep selling tickets. So that I think that'll play into it too. Yeah, no, there's definitely that, but there's also the case to be made that the Lakers stink and have stunk for a handful of years now, four years in a row, and the Clippers are still very clearly the second team in Los Angeles, despite being much better than the Lakers over the last four years. So it really just becomes to a point where LA is big enough to support both teams, obviously, 
and the Clippers don't want to be completely irrelevant, but you need to look down the line. Is it better to just say, you know what, let's, let's, you know, bottom out here for a couple years and then let's rebuild around a whole bunch of new players or are, or do you want to bring back Blake Griffin, really complicate your cap sheet and then say, well, you know, we got these other kind of good guys and maybe we go forward with this. It's a, it's almost a no win situation. Yeah. I'll just give one more opinion on this before moving on to an unrelated question. So I think it would be smartest in a basketball sense, especially given the dominance of a handful of teams right now in the NBA and with Griffin's injury issues, if they didn't even bring him back and they just increased their flexibility going forward and were a lot worse next season. But I have a feeling that Balmer is not going to want to do that. He likes how exciting Blake Griffin is, and he doesn't want the fan base to kind of take a step back and and them lose a lot of what they've started to build over the last five or six years here. So I think that even though it's not the best play from a strategic standpoint that they do bring back Blake Griffin with five years and max money, but again, we'll see. I know we spend a lot of time on that. I have a vested interest in the Clippers doing well <laughs> as a longtime fan. But I'm used to the suffering, so if they're bad next year, I'll be fine because I remember the entire 90s and after that, so <laughs> it'll be okay. I just got a little spoiled, I think, the last five or six years. Now, though, there's another suffering fan base that we're going to go to, that of the New York Knicks. James Dolan announced earlier Wednesday that Phil Jackson will not be a part of the front office moving forward. He infamously bashed Kristaps Porzingis in the media for missing exit interviews, reportedly considered trade offers for him, which everyone thought was crazy. While that might have been a little bit blown out of proportion, it seemed like it might have been the last straw in just a litany of issues that Phil Jackson has recently had in New York. What do you make of that whole wild situation? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. They are just in a spot where it had, enough was enough. It was time to do something completely different for them. They, what they had been doing was obviously not working. They weren't getting any better. The roster wasn't improving to the level where the Knicks wanted to be to be competitive. And I think the final straw was Phil Jackson. Well, the final straws, I should say, was Phil Jackson – going out and saying, maybe we'll trade Chris Stapps Porzingis prior to the draft. And then on the heels of that, coming back around and still insisting that Carmelo Anthony needs to waive his no trade clause. And that, you know, Anthony made that quite clear. That was not going to happen. He was never going to do that. And Phil Jackson basically sitting there, it's just turned it into a staring contest that that no one was going to win. And here we sit now, you know, Nine o'clock at my time on the East Coast on uh, Wednesday night, and Carmelo Anthony won the war of attrition. He's still in New York, and Phil Jackson's now gone. And James Dolan said their top target to fill Phil's vacant position is Masai Ujiri from the Toronto Raptors. Do you see that as likely that Masai would leave that position to join the Knicks? I know the Knicks also just brought on Tim Liwicky as the interim advisor for basketball operations, who has a previous relationship with Ujiri. 
Yeah, I, the only reason I don't is because the Toronto Raptors recently promoted Masai Ujiri to be the president of basketball operations, which would be the same role he'd be taking in New York. So that becomes a little bit of a trickier maneuver. It's not a promotion for him per se. Now, you know, I know Knicks fans are going to scream and yell, but we're the Knicks and they're the Raptors. Well, okay, you know, but that doesn't, you know, completely change things. And one thing I always caution people with Masai Ujiri, and I know there's this, you know, league-wide, fan-wide love affair is, but sure, he built the Denver Nuggets up, but then he left, and he left them a complete mess. They were a cap Mm -hmm. disaster. They weren't in a good place. Toronto Raptors, he's built them up. They're now a good team, but they're about to likely be a cap disaster. So Kyle Lowry, Serge Ibaka, PJ Tucker, Patrick Patterson, if any of those guys comes back or all of them come back, they're all going to get big deals. That's going to be a tax team that's going to be completely capped out for a number of years due to big contracts already on the books for DeMar DeRozan and Jonas Valanciunas. So where we sit is, it wouldn't surprise me if he said, you know what, looking at it, I can't do much more here in Toronto. Maybe it is time to go in and build the Knicks up and move on. I just think he's the kind of guy who's good when you're down, but once you're on top, you got to be really careful with a guy like that because he'll do anything he can to stay there. And then it's easy for him to say, yeah, I'm going to move on to the next place and rebuild them and then leave behind this, you know, tire fire behind him. You mentioned that Carmelo Anthony won the war of attrition. So now that Phil Jackson is gone Do you think that now he's okay in New York, even though obviously he wants to be on a team that's assembled to win, but do you think that uh, he'll be fine over there for a year or two? I think he's okay. I think Carmelo's okay staying in New York. I think where the challenge comes in is the Knicks, obviously, they still don't want him. They, They came out again today and said that they would still prefer to trade him. Now it's just it's it's so hard to move him because he makes so much money and he's is while still a good player he's not an all star anymore I know he made the all star game but that doesn't necessarily mean anything you know so it's it's hard to see you know, where are those fits they're starting to become less and less around the NBA for players like him you know these ball dominant ball stoppers who are really you know, he's, well, he's a, he's a good rebounder, but he really is a one-trick pony. He scores the basketball. He doesn't really defend great. He, you know, rebounds fairly solidly, but he's not a good passer. You know, there's nothing else that he brings to the table. So for teams now, looking at that is they're saying, do we want to have that guy at, you know, $30 million on our cap sheet? Because that's what it's going to take to bring in Carmelo once you factor in his trade bonus, assuming that he does take all of it. So it just it's a very tricky situation. The reason the Knicks aren't going to buy him out is because it's, it's it's a two-way street. In a buyout, usually you get the player to say, all right, I'll give back some money to gain my freedom. Well, Carmelo doesn't want to leave, so he's certainly not going to tell the Knicks, all right, here's you know 10 or $20 million of the $53 million you owe me left. He's not going to do that. So that's right. where it becomes a really sticky situation. I still think it's in everybody's best interest for them to look for a trade that makes sense, but if I don't know at this point if they can find it. Another possible target for the Knicks that people have been bandying around is David Griffin, the former Cavs GM who was just let go last week. There were a lot of rumors surrounding that decision 
by Dan Gilbert to not retain David Griffin, along with a lot of reported unhappiness from the Cavs stars, LeBron and Kyrie in particular. Disregarding all that for a second, how much of a disadvantage would Cleveland be entering this free agency period without a GM or if they do get their rookie GM that they want in Chauncey Billups. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's popular for people to say, oh, who cares? LeBron James is the GM. He makes all the decisions and it's simply not true. Now he probably has more input than any other player in the entire NBA, but it's more along the lines of David Griffin says, Hey, I can go get Kyle Korver. What do you think? And then LeBron's like, yeah, go get Kyle Korver. David Griffin's still the one who has to put all those pieces together. LeBron is not sitting there calling up, you know, the Hawks GM and saying, all right, you know, so we've got this trade exception and here's a trade kicker for this guy. How do we want to work this? That's just not happening. You know, so people say, you know, it's, it's that easy, but those are also the same people I like to say who go on NBA 2K and they shut the salary cap off and then they, you know, put all the all-stars on one team. That's, that's not realistic. You know, so losing David Griffin is a massive loss for the Cavaliers and losing him when they did just didn't make sense. And especially the way Dan Gilbert went about it. He didn't allow Griffin to interview with Orlando or Milwaukee or Atlanta, who all had interest in having a conversation with him. And then as soon as all those openings were filled, he dismissed him and said, we're done. So now, now you flip it forward to the Knicks. I think he'd be a fantastic hire for the Knicks. I'm just not sure he that's where he wants to go next. He might, you'll be better off served to say, you know what, I'll take a, a gap year here. I'll just kind of hang out, see what's going on, and then I will strategically pick my next place versus going into a Knicks team that really at this point they need torn down to the studs and rebuilt. Last week on the night of the draft, we saw another monumental trade that had the Chicago Bulls send Jimmy Butler in the 16th pick, which became Justin Patton, to the Minnesota Timberwolves in exchange for Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, and the 7th pick, which the Bulls used to pick Laurie Markkinen. Do you think that return was really the best the Bulls could have gotten for Jimmy Butler? I've seen a lot of people sort of criticize that there seemed to be better offers elsewhere. Yeah, that's really hard to know that there were better offers. I know a lot of people say, well, the Celtics must have gave a better offer. And this Danny Ainge came back out and said, we didn't. I think Mm -hmm. Danny Ainge was in a position where he knows Jimmy Butler wasn't necessarily the guy he wanted to go out and build around as they're pursuing their next iteration of this team and what other players they may be in the mix for in free agency. So I think the Bulls were at this point in a position where that may have truly been the best offer they could have gotten. Now, what's confusing for the Bulls is the best piece in that trade is Zach Levine. He's injured. The next best piece is Chris Dunn. Well, he's a point guard, and you just traded for a point guard of the future and campaign at the train dead line. Then the very next piece is the seventh overall pick, and he used it on a big man whose best ability is being a stretch four and can't really do a whole heck of a lot else. So it really leaves you feeling a little lukewarm of this is all we got for our franchise guy in Jimmy Butler. But I think what the Bulls did was they acted quickly, knowing this situation's going nowhere good. We've got to get out of this and move on. Yeah, and as a result of the trade, Jimmy Butler is now reunited with his former head coach and Tom Thibodeau. When Tom Thibodeau joined the Wolves last season, 
there was some thinking that that could lead to the Wolves becoming a pretty good defensive team because he's typically thought of as somewhat of a defensive mastermind. But last season, Minnesota was 26 in defensive efficiency. Does the addition of Butler to that core with his experience working with Tom Thibodeau in his system, does that immediately change that for the Wolves? I don't know that it alone immediately changes it, but I think what you're going to see is Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins are going to be a year older and have had a year under Thibodeau now to really be improved defenders. Then I think your next piece that you're looking at is who else do the Wolves go out and add? Because they still are going to have some cap space. They're going to be able to do some things. And if they go out and add another big time defender, which you know, all accounts are that's where they're looking to go now. They've got the offensive side covered. They they could use a point guard who could shoot it a little bit better um, than Ricky Rubio. But other than that, they're good. So if they go out and add another big-time defender, that's going to be what starts to improve it. So it's incremental growth plus whatever they add this summer. But they, they definitely did struggle on that end, I think, more so than many expected that they would. Yeah, I'm excited to see what Butler brings with his defense and his leadership to that young, promising team. You alluded to the potential of trading Rubio for a more offensively-minded point guard. Rubio did look a lot more comfortable offensively the second half of the year. I know that's a small sample size, and ultimately that's not the type of player that he is. He's just a player who's quick and has amazing court vision. But how important would that be? It doesn't seem like... Personally, I don't understand why they would be in that big of a hurry to trade Rubio. Where do you see that? Yeah, it's really hard, you know, and it's funny. NBA, you know, uh, Twitter loves Ricky Rubio, right? Everybody thinks this guy's way better than the general break he gets from the average fan out there. So what's really tricky is he he just can't shoot at all. But that doesn't hold him back. I'm the first one to say if if you have a point guard that can't shoot, they better be elite at other things. Well, Rubio is an elite ball handler. He's an elite passer, and he has the ability to be an elite defender. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. A lot of that depends around who else is with him. So for me at this point, what you end up having happen with um, Ricky Rubio is the rest of the roster matters quite a bit. If they can get one more shooter in there, ideally someone who maybe can be a little bit of a stretch four for them and bump Jang maybe to the bench or at least be a high minute backup, then Rubio all of a sudden looks a lot better because he can come in and just be the setup guy and set up these shooters. But when you don't have other shooters around him, that's when it really struggles. So I don't know how much of a rush I'd be in. If you're going to do it, you better have somebody lined up to come in that fits a little bit better. You know, maybe somebody like uh, George Hill, you know, would fit a little bit better. He, he, might come in, you know, he's used to playing off the ball, which he'd have to do because of all the other guys. And he, he's a knockdown shooter. So, you know, he would fit. Um, that's the kind of guys you're looking to target because it's not going to be a point guard who has the ball a whole bunch, just not with the way the rest of the offense is structured at this point. Hmm. I think George Hill would be an intriguing fit. Going back to Danny Ainge and the Celtics for a second. So they traded out of that number one pick and they didn't make the home run trade. So I think that a lot of the Celtics fan base is growing impatient and it's impossible to know what Danny Ainge has in the works. And like you alluded to before, 
how highly he really did value Jimmy Butler. He seems to not have felt that it would have been worth it to give what their asking price was or close to it. But he's been effusive in his praise for Jason Tatum, whom they took number three overall. How genuine do you think it is when he says that they would have taken him number one overall? Basically, just sell us on Tatum how good you think he can be and is already. Yeah, I think Tatum has a chance to be very, very good. I think he will come in and be a decent scorer right off the jump in the NBA. He's going to get a chance to likely develop at his own pace off the bench, similar to Jalen Brown this season that just concluded. So I think that'll make a lot of sense for him to be there and make, you know, a um, good, healthy, steady development season. Would they have taken him number one overall? It's impossible to know, right? They weren't in that position. But Danny Ainge says he would have. And Danny Ainge usually doesn't blow a lot of smoke as far as player evaluations go. There was pretty early on in this process a lot of buzz that Fultz might not be the Celtics guy at one. There was a lot of speculation. Maybe they like Lonzo Ball a little bit more. And then when it got deeper into it, and especially when Ball wouldn't work out, it really became clear that It was Tatum, and they fell in love with Tatum. So what they did was they moved back, picked up an extra first-round pick, which is going to be a good one no matter what, and they got their guy at three. So you can't really fault them for that. One thing you said that was interesting is the Celtics fan base getting you know, antsy. They're getting frustrated. It's really 50-50. You have the fans who are there that are like, all right, come on. We've got Isaiah Thomas. We've got Al Horford. Let's get this thing moving. Let's go get people and go win games. Then you have another whole half of the fan base who is like, absolutely not. Do not trade all these good picks for these guys. We can't beat the Warriors anyway. Let's just continue at the pace we're on, do what we got to do and go from there. So it really is a, you know, it's a curious, interesting mix at this point for the Celtics because they're trying to be good now and trying to be good down the line. I'm not saying either faction is wrong or right, but what you said about that second group is refreshing to me because my stereotype of most fans is that they're Generally, a little bit irrational, impatient, conventional wisdom is that you need more to get over the hump that is LeBron James every single season in the East. I appreciate that there are uh, not so insignificant segment of fans that are happy with the young players they have over there. They're so good, Stevens, Ainge, and company at developing young talent picking guys who play good defense and developing that skill even more once they're there. And they've really built something strong. So maybe they're not a championship contender quite yet, and we don't know what's in store in the near future. But they're definitely headed in the right direction, obviously finishing number one overall in the East last regular season. So what do you think the most likely scenario is for them heading into the start of their season? Yeah, so there's a couple things here. One is there's a very strong belief in those that I talked to around the NBA that Danny Ainge believes they can get Hayward and that they also have things lined up to get a second player, whether that be Paul George or somebody else. They've got something lined up so that they can get them to be a more true contender. The challenge is making that happen is extremely complicated. It goes back to what I said. You can't you can't just shut the cap off and make a move and then turn it back on. It doesn't work that way. You've got to do it 
in a specific order of operations. The sequence really matters. So they got to do that. So as far as their, their approach this summer, their first 100% initial target out of the gate is Gordon Hayward. They're going to go after him as hard as they can and try to get him. And then they'll do what they have to do after that. You brought up the possibility of getting a guy like Paul George. Paul George, he has been on the trading block from the Pacers ever since he expressed his interest in joining the Lakers when he becomes a free agent after next season. The Pacers are reportedly seeing offers from the Cavs, Rockets, the aforementioned Celtics, among other teams. Let me ask you a two-part question. First of all, how much do you think those teams will be willing to give up especially given the possibility of Paul George just being a one-year rental and then when he becomes a free agent going to the Lakers? And then secondly, is there incentive for the Lakers themselves to try to trade for George and stop one of those other teams from getting him and then convincing him to stay with them? Yeah, how much they'd give up is really tricky because the challenge there comes is Paul George has made it clear that he's leaving. So once you do that, that limits your leverage. But where the Pacers have gained back some leverage is that they now are in a position where multiple teams are interested. So that re-ups their leverage because now it's instead of just being one team that they're dealing with, they can ask for a little bit more because it's all right, we are going to trade this guy and they have to trade him. They, right. they can't let him walk away for nothing. So now they can pit the teams that are trying to trade for him against right, start other. a bidding war. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the goal, right? Is you want to start a bidding war and start driving that up so you can get there. As far as the Lakers go, it's tough because there's a school of thought that says, just wait and then just sign them with cap space next summer. And then we didn't give up anything. And then we've got all of our stuff and Paul George. Then there's another side that says, Go get him now because if someone else gets him, maybe you don't get the shot at getting him. Maybe he goes to Boston and he's happy there. Maybe he does end up in Houston. And he's like, this is great. I want to be here. So that becomes really hard is figuring that out to get it to where you you know really need it to be. Right. The worry is like somehow the Cavs trade for Paul George. Paul George plays a season in Cleveland, realizes that he loves playing alongside Kyrie Irving and LeBron James and tries to chase however many championships that would bring, right? Yeah, and then then you have the Lakers fans on the other side of the fence saying, we're getting Paul George and LeBron James next summer anyway. So, you know, let, let's just get this thing moving and go get them now. The interesting thing is the Lakers, if they wouldn't trade it for Paul George today, they have no incentive to be bad next year. They don't have their pick. Mm -hmm. So they might as well be a good team. And if the best decision is get Paul George now, then have his rights as a free agent, re-sign him next summer to a new contract, that could be the best direction to go. It's obvious you're an expert on a lot of topics through our discussion here. One that you clearly have much more expertise than we do is in the uh, nuances of the salary cap. So the salary cap was set a little bit lower than projected. It's set at $99 million. How does that affect the team's ability entering into this free agency period to attract free agents to their team? And how does it change the landscape of the movement that we're likely to see over the next month? Yeah, what it does for the team I always use in the example here is the Celtics. They were already going to struggle to clear max space for Gordon Hayward pursued in free agency. Now it becomes that much harder to pull that off because you are sitting in a position where 
you have two million less. The last projection was 101 million. So you have two million less to work with than you originally thought you would have. So when you have that now, people will say, but the max salary goes down, but it doesn't go down the same rate. It's not dollar for dollar. So all it does is it tightens that window. For a team like the Sacramento Kings, for example, who I project to have over $50 million in cap space, doesn't really matter. You'd change it by $5 million, it wouldn't matter. So what you're looking at now is how do you get them into a much tighter window that you get to work within? And that ultimately what that means is you're going to have to move other players that maybe you didn't want to or wouldn't have had to move previously. So we had that big Chris Paul news Wednesday, and that really does shake up the NBA in, in a meaningful way. And we're going to be uh, hearing about more big decisions, whether a guy decides to stay with the team that he's on or leave elsewhere. Who are some of the guys that you think are most likely to change teams that maybe we haven't mentioned yet so far? I do think Gordon Hayward is going to leave Utah, and I do think he will ultimately go to the Boston Celtics. The reason for that is I think he's going to look at it and say, I can't beat Houston, San Antonio, and Golden State with this team here in Utah. We're just not going to be able to improve enough to get past all three of those teams. You know, maybe one of them they might be able to get past, but all three is asking a lot. The path is a little clearer in the Eastern Conference, especially if LeBron James leaves in a year. You know, they may not get there this coming season, but if he leaves Cleveland in a year, all of a sudden the East could be really up for the taking for the Celtics if they added a guy like Gordon Hayward. Plus, the Celtics have the ability to add another player too. So you'd be really looking at a core group then of Isaiah Thomas, Gordon Hayward, another player, and Al Horford, which is a pretty good group to build around. Beyond that, the big names that I think you're going to see move, they're more on the veteran side. I think we're going to see somewhat of a point guard shuffle. I think George Hill will move. I think Jeff Teagle will move on from Indiana. Patrick Mills, I think Patty Mills, he's going to end up somewhere else. We obviously already saw Chris Paul move. I think J.J. Redick is going to be playing elsewhere other than, than the Clippers. Danilo Gallinari at the small forward position I think will be elsewhere. Griffin will see Paul Millsap. I don't think there's any way he's back with the Hawks. And then you start to get into the more restricted free agent types, a little bit harder for those guys to move. But I do think what you're going to see in that market is their incumbent teams, they're going to be forced to pay up to keep their own guys because teams like the Nets, Kings, and 76ers, they may extend offer sheets to guys and force their their incumbent teams to match to bring them back. I had a follow-up question about the Jazz, but I was curious first, do you think Kyle Lowry probably will stay with Toronto? I do, just because of the combination of his age and the Raptors can pay him so much more than anybody else can. I do think he will stay in Toronto. I think he was going to get some looks from the Rockets or maybe the Spurs, but I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, he will stay right there in Toronto where he you know, really blossomed into an all-star and became the team leader there. I don't think he's going to look to leave. And he's also BFFs with DeMar DeRozan too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those guys are super tight. So I was going to ask about the Utah Jazz. So I agree with you that it's likely that Hayward leaves and signs with Boston. But in defense of Utah's chances of keeping him, I think there's a case to be made that Utah has improved every single season, I think for four years now straight or so with their record. They're a really good defensive team with a lot of solid young players. I think if Gordon Hayward remains, George Hill is likely to stay. 
And so you're right to highlight how dominant those teams are going to be at the top of the West, namely the Rockets, Spurs, and Warriors. But I think Utah feels good about the young team that they've built with Quinn Snyder and they like it there. Do you think it's just that Boston's situation is just that much better and the Butler connection too with Stevens and Hayward? So here's what I'll tell you with the Jazz. If they re-sign Gordon Hayward to a max contract, and that's what it's going to take, they re-sign George Hill to something between probably 16 and $20 million a year. Then they re-sign Joe Ingles to something that's probably north of $10 million. All of a sudden, you have an extremely expensive roster. And you're facing contract extensions for Rodney Hood and Dante Exum that would kick in next season. So really, you start to say, all right, this is the group we're locking into because we're going to pay all these guys and we're going to keep all of them. And at that point, is is that what you want to do for the next really three to four to five years? Say, this is our group. We're going to war with these guys every night because what you run the risk of are they good enough? Can you really make it with just that group and compete with the Golden States and the San Antonios and the Houston? And that's just to get to the NBA Finals. I'm not sure because I don't disagree with you that they have improved because they have continued to improve. But at some point, that's not going to be the case. At some point, that levels off. Guys don't improve in perpetuity. Eventually, that's it. They've hit their limit and they're not going to get any better. And I think we're getting to that point with the Jazz. Before we let you go, I just want to ask you a little bit about the draft that happened last week. The most intriguing picks to me were the ones that sent Dennis Smith Jr. to the Mavericks and Malik Monk to the Hornets. Were you surprised by any prospect that got picked as high as they did or fell as far as they did that you want to be looking out for? You know, that's a good question. I was a little surprised that Monk slipped as far as he did. I think that was uh, just a case of teams started drafting a little bit more for need versus best player available. The picks are almost immediately in front of him. And, you know, other than Markinen, who I think might have been slightly overdrafted by the Bulls, I think all the rest of the picks really made sense. So him sliding was different. I'm really intrigued by two guys, Donovan Mitchell, who ended up going to the Jazz, who traded up. I'm really curious to see what he can do. He shoots a very, very nice ball. It's a, such a soft touch. He gets up, good lift on his jumper, you know, just looks like he's going to come right in and be a scorer, you know, from day one. And then the other guy who I'm really interested in is Harry Giles, who the Sacramento Kings picked up after they traded back with the Portland Trailblazers. I think if Giles can get healthy, the Kings may have the steal of the draft because this is a guy who in high school was the consensus top recruit in the country and everybody loved this guy. So I think those are probably the two that I'm really curious to see how they work out. Mitchell, because I think he can be a contributor to a good team right away. And then Giles, just so much potential there if he can stay healthy. Keith, I know we threw a lot of stuff at you today and you provided us with so much valuable information heading into this free agency period. Thank you so much for your time. It was great having you on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime you want, you know, let me know. back. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Aaron Fishman, still here with Lauren Lee Chen. Earlier in the day, before we caught up with Keith Smith, we had that landscape-altering trade news come out. Chris Paul, of course, headed to the Houston Rockets, away from the Clippers, where he spent 
six seasons where he was successful consistently just in the regular season. They never got to a conference final. So obviously disappointing news for Clippers fans and could be very exciting for the Rockets as they chase the Golden State Warriors out west. Lauren, the first question I'm posing to you is, without inside information, essentially what went wrong for the Clippers in their failure to retain Paul? Well, as soon as the news of the trade came out, we immediately, it seemed, started hearing rumors about the strained relationship between Chris Paul and Doc Rivers. Michael Eaves, the ESPN Sports Center anchor, wrote a long involved post on his Facebook page where he detailed where the relationship went wrong. He referenced a rumored trade offer sent to the Clippers by the New York Knicks that involved sending Carmelo Anthony to the Clippers in exchange for Jamal Crawford, Paul Pierce, and Austin Rivers, which according to that report, Doc Rivers declined. And Michael Eve says that Chris Paul's belief that Doc was putting his relationship with his son over the needs of the team. Now, I'm not sure how much I believe that. I don't know where his information's from. I don't I don't know if it's true or false, but I think the main thing going into the Clippers' decision not to retain him was that he wanted that five-year contract that would pay him $45 million in the season that he turns 38. The Rockets were willing to offer him that. The Clippers weren't. I think that's ultimately where it was. Just one minor correction. I think it would have been until he was 37 if the Clippers signed him to the five-year deal this year. I think that if he's remained with the Clippers, that he would have just signed the five years. But I guess we have no way of knowing. Maybe he would have wanted to retain that flexibility and um, use another year just as a wait and see. But regardless, anytime a franchise fails to re-sign one of the best guys in their history, and for the Clippers, I think most people would agree that Chris Paul is the best player in franchise history. When you fail to do that, there's going to be a lot of spinning throughout the organization. And Doc Rivers has already started to do this. So I'm not saying that we should take everything that he says 100% at face value because he might be exaggerating or understating certain things to portray himself in a better light. So he's not blamed for this franchise-wide failure to keep Paul in town. But I do, for the most part, believe Doc Rivers when he says that a lot of this stuff is being overblown and exaggerated in the media And that when it comes down to it, Chris Paul wanted to be on a team where he felt like he could have the most success, the best chance at the championship, and that essentially Doc Rivers and Chris Paul just disagree on that point. Doc Rivers felt like Paul had a better chance to win a title in Los Angeles, and Paul felt like it was in Houston. So I'm skeptical of a lot of what Eves reported. I don't I don't think that Doc Rivers would turn down a trade like that. At least I hope he wouldn't in an effort just to keep his son on the team. So I think a lot of that and a lot of the stuff that people talk about, the -the off-the-court drama, is a little bit exaggerated. I know Chris Paul is not the easiest guy to, to work with alongside, and he demands the most of players. Sometimes people have compared him to Kobe Bryant in that way, can be grading, but they had so much regular season success. They were just so close. I think 
you talked about this in your response, Lauren. I think it really had to do with the Clippers not wanting to offer that fifth year. Or I shouldn't say not wanting to, but reports I've read use the word hesitant. Right. And when you hesitate, trying to, to keep a guy of that caliber, the guy might see it as a sign of weakness that the Clippers aren't all in on what he brings to the table. And he wants to be courted and valued and cherished as the superstar that he is. And while that may sound needy, a lot of superstars are like that. Regardless of the age that Chris Paul would be at the end of the contract, I think that that was a mistake by the Clippers not to just tell him right out of the gates, we're going to give you the five years. We desperately want you to stay with the team because I know a lot of people say how far ahead the Warriors are of everyone in the Western Conference, but I really do believe that the Clippers were a move or so away from being a championship contender if they kept Paul and Griffin, even losing Reddick. So I think that's where they aired. The next thing I wanted to ask you before we move on from the Clippers is, what do you think they do with Blake Griffin? And as an unrestricted free agent, do you think he stays if they offer him five years in max? I do think there is a want for the Clippers to remain at least somewhat relevant, stay in the playoff picture. I think that's why, you know, the package they got back from Houston included a few relevant players, not just assets or future building pieces. And it's something that we talked on the show with Keith a little bit, or you talked with him a little bit. There's still that sense of the Clippers being the little brother team in LA. They have built in the last six or seven years since Blake Griffin became a force, especially. And then after that, since adding Chris Paul to the team, they've built up a lot of goodwill in LA. I mean, they're still very secondary to the Lakers in terms of fan base, but there's many more Clippers fans than there were a decade ago. Yeah, I agree with that. You don't want to go back to the level, even if it's just being bad for a few years before you build yourself back up, I think that would cause them to lose a lot of the goodwill that they built up. Steve Ballmer just made a huge investment in the team. He wants to separate them from the Lakers to ultimately invest in a new stadium. I think that's the goal for the Clippers. They want in the near term at least to at least stay relevant. I think we really agree on that. I know I made most of my opinions known in the interview with Keith, but just to reiterate basically my stance on it, I think it's the two things you said, the arena and also, you didn't really say this explicitly, but I think you were hinting at it. Blake Griffin is just such an exciting player. So it's not just that by virtue of him being on the team, they get more wins. And I think that with him and Beverly and DeAndre Jordan and a couple other guys they have, they should be a playoff team again. But also... It's that brand of basketball. So you're not going to have Chris Paul's court vision that is electrifying to watch and very important for the bottom line of wins. But Blake Griffin is such a high flyer. So is DeAndre Jordan. So even though you don't have the same level of passing that's going into them, they put butts in the seats. So even though they're never going to have the legacy of the Lakers, especially not until they start winning championships, which feels like it's far off now, You don't want to go, I think, if you're um, Steve Ballmer from his perspective, you don't want to go from basically everything that they started to build 
to ground zero again where they're the laughing stock of the league. It takes a long time to rebuild. And while it might be the wisest, most prudent move from a basketball sense, I, I don't know about from a business perspective and fan base standpoint, like if it's the route they want to go. Just the last thing I'll say, so we don't spend too much time on the Clippers, but about Blake Griffin's decision. So reportedly the Phoenix Suns will be his first visit when the free agency period officially begins on Saturday. And now there's some talk that the Clippers may be wary of offering a five-year max for him. They probably, according to reports, would offer five years. No other team can, but it might not be the maximum amount of money. And so that kind of reminds me of what happened with Chris Paul a little bit, even though that was the number of years. If Griffin feels like he's not fully respected and there's an up-and-coming team with a lot of cap flexibility like the Phoenix Suns or like, I don't know, the Philadelphia 76ers, or I'm just throwing a team out there. Celtics. Not that I heard any rumors. Yeah, or the Celtics, they have a ton of cap space. Then I could see Blake Griffin spurning the Clippers because while he likes the LA scene and Hollywood, what he's doing in the entertainment industry, and playing with his friend DeAndre Jordan, he's a competitive guy when it comes down to it. And the Clippers, from a competition standpoint, took a huge step back, let's just be honest about it, with their loss of Chris Paul. So if Blake Griffin doesn't get five years max money love, then I would not be surprised if he left. And I think that would be disappointing from um, a fan perspective, but it could be smart in the long run for financial flexibility. We'll go to the Houston Rockets, which probably are way more deserving of our time than the Clippers because they're still relevant in terms of chasing a championship, I believe. While there will certainly be challenges with the James Harden-Chris Paul dynamic on the court, given that historically those guys both like to dominate the ball, I think it's a very exciting time in Houston, and I think they could be a really exciting pair. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, do I think that they're as constructed right now on the level of the Warriors? Probably still not, I would say, like even adding Chris Paul to the mix. But they still have a lot of work to do this offseason. They're still amassing a ton of these non-guaranteed contracts. I think they have four on their hands right now to use in some deal. They have the ability to add a player using the mid-level exception as well and the biannual exception. So there's a lot of things that could happen still with the Rockets. In terms of on the court right now with Chris Paul and James Harden, the biggest effect is going to be you won't have that offensive drop-off that you saw last year for the Rockets when James Harden wasn't on the floor when James Harden wasn't playing, the Rockets basically went from the best offense in the league to almost one of the worst, I think, or at least a below average offense. If Mike D'Antoni's truly going to stagger Chris Paul and Harden's minutes such that there isn't essentially any time where one of them's not on the court, you won't see that drop off. I think statisticians estimated that that alone would have been good for an extra two and a half to three points per 100 possessions, which can translate to about an extra five wins, which is huge for a team that was as good as the Rockets last year. 
The other thing which we mentioned on the show was we saw how the Rockets and James Harden specifically flamed out against the Spurs in the playoffs last year. He had such a burden on him, and he just looked so tired by the end of that series. It's just another person on the team that can help share the load. So I'm excited to see where it goes. It's definitely intriguing. Zach Lowe, as he always does again and again, wrote a really good piece on the trade. And he talked about it from both teams' perspectives. But just focusing on the Rockets side of things, he made a good case. While he did talk about some of the potential challenges, the same ones that you were just alluding to and and Keith Smith talked about in the interview, there are a lot of things to be excited about. As you just referenced, Harden looked kind of worn down. His efficiency, I think, has the potential to just go through the roof where he's not dominating the ball as much. And same thing for Paul. Neither guy has to dominate the ball all the time. They can share. One of the arguments that Zach Lowe made is that almost, and I'm quoting here, almost every championship team in history meshed two ball-dominant stars who learned to play off of each other. And, I mean, that's true with a lot of these super teams that we've seen recently. Like Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, those guys would dominate the ball all the time and ended up working. And that's just one example. But also, Harden has been really good on catch-and-shoot threes. So that just increases his efficiency. And Paul kind of likes to dribble around a little bit in the half court, draw defenders, and then create. And Harden likes to do that too. So conversely, Paul can also spot up beyond the arc. And he's been a plus 40% three-point shooter from deep two of the last three years. So their shooting just improves that much. And, and if D'Antoni gets comfortable with how he staggers the minutes of those two, they're not going to really have a, a moment where neither one is on the court. So that can be really good for them. Yeah, as you mentioned, both players are really good at catch and shoot threes. Both players are also really good at taking advantage of opportunities where they initiate an action, kick it out, and then get the ball back. So I expect to see a lot of that, maybe some double dribble drives like Harden starts with the ball, drives to the hoop, kicks it out to Paul, who is able to immediately go into another pick and roll and then kick it back out to Harden. The other thing is Harden, I think, Nick Syria of Nylon Calculus pointed this out. Last season, he took the lowest percentage in the NBA of wide-open threes. So I expect that number to go up a lot, too, with Chris Paul on the team. Just one last thing I wanted to note. They still have some work in filling out the roster. There is a little bit of flexibility still with a couple of the exceptions that the Rockets still own because of how shrewdly... Daryl Morey has been maneuvering in recent seasons. So I'm going to reserve judgment with regard to how close they are to the Warriors until they're done making all their moves. But it's a huge first step in pairing these two superstars together. And I think that Morey has done the bulk of the heavy lifting and Houston just has a ton to be excited about this time of year. I'm excited too. I think we'll close the show there. As a reminder, you can always find more of our musings on Twitter. Our show account is at OnTheNBABeat. I'm Lauren L. Chen, and Aaron is at ByAaronFish. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 
If you do that, if you listen to us in podcast form, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and a review. It doesn't take that much time, and it really helps us find new listeners. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah.